Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. You've landed right where you should be today. If you're looking for a great conversation about what it means to be purpose-driven, you are in the right place. On Care More Be Better, we often talk about voting with your dollars so we can collectively do more good. But you may not already know how to identify when a company is authentic, if they're greenwashing or purpose-washing. So today we're going to dig into that as I'm joined by a branding expert who spends his work life working with socially driven companies and not-for-profit organizations. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Welcome, do-gooders. To ensure you get the most out of this podcast, I'd like to invite you to visit caremorebebetter.com. You can sign up for our newsletter and easily browse past shows on topics that matter to you. Each episode page has show notes with the timestamps links to YouTube video and a complete transcript. There's an action page which provides suggestions for actions you can take to make a difference. And there's even a link to becoming a supporting member of the show. You can join with a Patreon gift of as little as $2 a month. Just click the donate button in the menu or at the bottom of any page to make a contribution. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to a fellow do-gooder from Santa Cruz. Eric Ressler is a founder and creative director at Cosmic, a social impact creative agency. Cosmic empowers social impact organizations to catalyze real-world change by helping them nail their impact story, build brand awareness, and inspire action. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'd love to ask you how the weather is in Santa Cruz, but I can already tell you it's absolutely beautiful out today. So let's talk about what was the catalyst that drove you to start Cosmic? First, what fires you up? And second, why Cosmic? So since a young age, I've always been compelled and driven through acts of creativity in many different forms, from music to stop motion animation to videography, to traditional art. And so growing up, creativity was just always a really important part of my identity and my life and my passion. And as I started to move into a career path, that really started to crystallize in the discipline of design and digital media. And so I started basically freelancing, doing consulting work with clients, mostly on digital experiences, websites, brands, And that sort of just organically built over time through freelance work and then another firm that I started and ended up moving on from and then ultimately led to me creating Cosmic. And Cosmic's been around for about 11 years now. We're actually born out of a co-working space that you probably know called NextSpace here in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And basically the demand for the work that I was doing just grew to the point where it became necessary to bring other team members on to help and to expand the services and the offerings. And when we first got started, we were really open to just kind of doing almost anything for people that were building businesses and startups and B2B brands and B2C brands. And we always took projects on that we were motivated by, but a lot of them were very 
driven by profit and by growth in kind of the traditional ways that you think about with companies. And we did that for a long time, and we kind of cut our teeth doing that work with Silicon Valley startups and enterprise brands. And alongside that, also some nonprofits, some social enterprises. And we grew as an agency and we learned a lot. And we started to really think about our positioning and our niche and how we wanted to stand out as a firm and what we wanted to do and spend our days doing as an agency and as people. And so about three and a half, four years ago, we really took a hard look at that and decided we wanted to focus our efforts only on doing work in the social impact space and really put a stake in the ground around that work and deepen our expertise and our experience and our offerings to those types of organizations. And so we made the call, we shifted the brand, and we've only looked forward from there. Wow. So do you have any examples that you think are just really great kind of bastions of what it is that you do? Oh, man, there's so many that come to mind for me. (laughs) Maybe a favorite, maybe a beer or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. So we're really lucky. And I guess this is an intentional thing, but there are other firms that focus on doing work only for nonprofits. And we made a very conscious decision to really use the term and terminology of social impact organizations. That's more of an umbrella term that encompasses also social enterprises, funders, foundations, philanthropists, because we don't believe that the only way to do good is through being a nonprofit. We do think that there are situations where a market-based approach or an innovation-based approach are equally effective, if not more effective in certain situations. And so I can list a few from those different categories. We've done a lot of work with a really awesome organization called the Romero Institute. They have a number of different programs that they're doing around social justice, climate justice. Last year, we launched a campaign with them called Let's Green California that is a climate justice campaign really trying to bring more climate action to the forefront in California from a legislative approach. It's a really awesome campaign. I'd really highly recommend that everyone check it out because it's really meant to serve as a model for how we can start to make some meaningful action on this urgent issue of climate justice and climate action. So that one comes to mind. We've done other work with them as well. And then kind of on the other side of things, from the social enterprise side, we recently wrapped up some work with an organization called Wind Harvest that has a really awesome technological innovation in the wind space. So when you think about wind energy, you think about these massive turbines that you see driving out on the highway and the rolling hills. They've actually developed a smaller wind turbine that's called a vertical access turbine. So instead of it spinning like a pinwheel, it actually rotates kind of parallel with the ground. And it's actually tapping into this previously unutilized energy source of near ground wind that traditional turbines can't leverage. So it's a really interesting technological innovation, which we believe is a very important part of the larger solution to climate action. And they have invented this really cool technology that's going to open up all of this new energy and resource that's going to be, I think, really critical to solving some of these issues and can serve in some new niches that wind wasn't really a possibility for. It can also expand these wind farms by leveraging more of the wind power that's already being funneled through them. So that was a really fun project to work on as well. Well, with the added benefit of not damaging or killing birds of prey who fly through, because that has been one of the problems associated with the larger traditional wind turbines that you and I are used to seeing on the sides of the highways. The number of deaths each year of just birds that serve the ecosystem 
was pretty ginormous. Absolutely. And the truth is that it's not perfect, but they are significantly less impactful on wildlife, birds of prey, other wildlife as well. So it's a good point and good to hear that you're informed on the issues. Well, I try to be. Animal activism is the next big dive I'm going to take. Presently, I'm really focused on where we've been with regard to social impact and sustainability, but that animal activism is live and well in my heart. So we'll get there (laughs) in future months. Now, before we get into talking so much about what your agency really does and how it helps companies achieve the results in front of them, I'd like for you to provide your personal take on how you identify and select companies that you want to support with your dollars, how you really can tell greenwashing and purpose washing from the real deal. Because I imagine doing the work you do, you've gotten pretty good at that. Yeah. So for me, it really comes down to the word authenticity. And that can mean a lot of different things to different people. So I guess in my life, I'm always looking for companies that are responsible, are sustainable, but that really come through on their promise. Because what we're seeing is that as this next generation of conscious consumers grows and grows and becomes more and more important to tap into as a brand, there's all kinds of companies trying to leverage cause marketing and cause messaging and greenwashing and cause washing to try to attract that demographic of conscious consumers. And so the space is getting quite noisy and there's a lot of promises being made that are not kept or that are really you're seeing cause washing campaigns coming out of Exxon Mobil, for example. Right. And it's just like, well, and not to say that they can't improve and make some progress on the work that they're doing and shift their organization. But at the same time, what are they sweeping under the rug and what's their history and their ethos been as an organization? Right. And so when I'm assessing a brand in my personal life, I'm looking at what they say and I'm looking at what they do. And that sounds very simple, but if you can do that authentically and dig in and start to assess organizations from that lens, it can help a lot to try and figure out who you should support and who you shouldn't support. And so I spend a little bit of time when I'm assessing a new brand. Yeah. Starting by digging into their website, it's a good place to start, but really also looking at other sources because When you look at these brands, they have a complete control over the narrative on their site. But if you start to do some what's called lateral reading and look at other sources of information, whether it's news articles from press that you trust or there's other vetting groups that are out there that will do write-ups on organizations and assess their impact from a sustainability standpoint, from a social justice standpoint, That's a really good approach that I've learned is effective versus just only digging into their marketing efforts. It's a good place to start and to just look at reports and things like that on their site. But I would highly recommend looking at other sources to judge organizations in terms of their social and environmental impact. Right. I mean, I've seen a few examples that I think are really incredible. Fair Trade Organization is really doing a lot of work to make sure that people are fairly paid for the quality of material that they produce. However, there are some companies that are seeking to best those standards and don't see the same value in paying for a fair trade certification, and then are doing a lot of additional work to try and educate their consumers about how they've really raised the bar. 
But at the same time to a consumer, you know, they might be skeptical of that. Is it really just marketing or how have you documented it? And can I look at that? So that's the value in that third party certification. In an earlier episode, I interviewed Mokhtar Alhanshali of Port of Mocha Coffee. And that's one example where he's paying the farmers far more than a living wage would traditionally be in Yemen. And so because of that, he hasn't yet gone out and got specifically that fair trade certification. There was another company I studied in graduate school. I'm forgetting the brand now, but they were doing a chocolate from Brazil and exclusively working with some of these really interesting locations where they were besting organic and fair trade practices. And so I get a little skeptical often when I see these marketing spiels, specifically because I know how much work goes into documenting it. So, I mean, it's a lot of work on the part of the consumer to assume that they might do that. If we can even just really look to buy fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolate, organic certified we are generally going to know that the quality is better. I really do think, though, that there is a need for a new kind of social impact certification that can rate companies based on what they're doing a little differently. So if a company, for instance, is giving back to local shelters in their environment or in their local communities or something along those lines that it could be ratified from the outside, the impact that they're making in some way. Do you know of anything that's currently kind of in the horizon in that area? And I mean, the closest thing that comes to mind for me, other than the examples that you already referenced with regards to fair trade and certified organic would be like the B Corp system trying to operationalize and standardize what it means to be a benefit corporation. And they're a nonprofit themselves. And I think that it's an interesting and fascinating topic, really, because it's funny, coffee was actually the very first thing that popped in my brain when you were talking about this, because I know of a number of coffee brands that aren't fair trade certified, but actually, like you said, best the standards set by fair trade. And they do that from a perspective of quality first, but by striving for optimal quality, you also need to treat everyone in the supply chain in a humane way. So it's an interesting topic. And I do think that my thinking immediately goes to these third-party certifications and processes like that. But they're slippery slope there too, because they aren't able to always be a seal of trust or accurate across different segments of the market in these specialized ways. So in short, I don't think there's a silver bullet here. I think if the closest thing to a silver bullet is going to be around everyone having values around these things and being committed to supporting the right organizations and being willing to do a little bit of research and thinking about their choices and how they're able to vote with their dollar and which companies they support and which companies they don't support. With that said, that's also a somewhat privileged thing, right? Not everyone has the time to do that. Not everyone has the money to support these organizations. And so I do worry a little bit about putting too much personal responsibility on the consumer, the everyday person. And that's maybe showing my cards a little bit about how I think our systems need to change. I do think some of this needs to happen at the policy level as well. Right. Well, and if we make it easier for them to better understand, one of the things I've been thinking about is that in the chocolate case, for example, not everyone is going to go out there and buy a $10 bar of chocolate. But part of the problem is that they see it as a candy, like a Snickers. A Snickers, you might buy for a buck. 
and the chocolate that we're actually producing in this fair trade way or even a bested fair trade capacity uses more cacao in a single bar than you would probably see in 10 Snickers bars. Right. So if it gives you kind of a different perspective on what you're consuming and how, I think just being a little bit more mindful about the choices you're making, the purchases you're making, and the quality that you're actually getting, that it is far different from what you see from a Snickers bar. Right. So you're not even comparing apples to apples, right? It's a totally different product. Yeah. Completely different field. Yeah. And so I think we just need to change our headset. One of the things I find actually really a little frustrating is that sometimes a brand as big as, for instance, Tom's Shoes, who really made a name for themselves in this social impact space, right? Like they would do a buy one, give one. So you buy a pair of shoes and they would give a pair of shoes to somebody in a community that would need them. And a lot of people perceive that that's still happening today, and it's not. They've shifted how they do their cause partnerships to being more aligned with what good they're doing in the world in other ways. And you'll see the founders and also the people leading Tom's defending that choice and saying, well, it's because we could do more good in more communities in these ways than by giving shoes, and shoes weren't always something that was needed or wanted. However, the challenge there is that they haven't adequately communicated that change with the public. And so they still get used as this example consistently by people like, oh, yeah, Tom's Shoes, they're that one for one shoe company. So I think that's an interesting challenge, too. Like maybe what they're doing now is better, but they're obviously not very good yet at communicating that change with the public. Yeah, we actually wrote an article about this exact topic that was really fun to write. And Yeah, Tom's kind of carved out a niche and a name for themselves and kind of are credited with pioneering the buy one, give one model. There were other brands doing it before them, but they were some one of the most successful, at least in getting the PR around it. I'm very intrigued to see how this plays out. I think it's still a relatively recent change in their business model. And I think one of the reasons why it's been difficult to communicate this change is because they have such a strong reputation for their old model, right? It's built into the public understanding and to some extent, like kind of the zeitgeist of who they are. And it's an easy story to tell. And I think that's actually kind of the power of that buy one, give one model for social enterprises is it's very tangible. It's very clear. It's very emotionally charged in a good way. And it's a simple message from a brand messaging standpoint. And that is great. And it has a lot of benefits to it. However, and actually what I applaud Tom's for is they started looking at the impact around that model and was it the right thing? They actually got a lot of criticism around, hey, you're giving folks shoes that don't have water. Like that's actually more important, right? Or other issues. It wasn't always water because they're serving a number of different communities. So As we mentioned in our article, actually, that's not the only reason. They were also facing a lot of financial difficulties. A lot of other folks were trying to adopt the same model, do the same thing, sell shoes for cheaper, or give back more than one pair. So they were running into obstacles from a business operations standpoint. So I don't think it was only out of the goodness of their heart that they made the shift. I I do believe that they have an authentic, purposeful mission in their organization, and they have a track record of making solid choices. But the challenge then is it's a much, much more difficult brand story. Well, and it can sound a little convoluted, right? Because they're doing water projects in one spot and something else somewhere else. 
And they're trying to make a system where their consumers can actually play in and have a little bit of a choice and how they're using their dollars. However, it's not one cause, so it's not a clear message anymore. Exactly. And that's a huge challenge from a branding perspective, which I don't think means you shouldn't do it, right? If that's really what you believe as a business leader in like thinking about the executive team at Tom's and how they're making choices around their business model and how their marketing supports that, I don't think that just because it's hard, you shouldn't do it if you really think that's the way you're going to be able to make the most impact as an organization. What's really interesting to me from an ethical perspective is like who's setting these agendas, right? It's their leadership team. Yes, they're listening to their consumers, but this starts to get into kind of like an ethical dilemma around how do you make choices around prioritization when there's so many urgent issues across the country, across the world. How do you choose what cause to support and how do you take dollars earned through selling goods and distribute them to those most in need and how do you set priorities so my understanding is they essentially sat down as a team and it was probably informed by consumer research but they basically looked at what do we think are the most pressing issues the most accessible issues in terms of like consumers understanding them and we're going to prioritize supporting those initiatives And that's a really interesting concept. And I'm curious to see how this plays out for them and to see if other organizations similar to Tom's take another look at this and move away from the buy one, give one approach. Yeah. I mean, another really good example is Bomba's Socks, right? Yeah. And I think that they absolutely chose the right partnership. I see that one lasting because socks aren't incredibly expensive And homeless people are always going to need new socks and more than just one pair at a time. And so it feels like something that has depth and breadth and that can grow and be scalable with time. I think scaling is the big problem that Tom's faced because you're essentially doubling your costs for an item that's already somewhat expensive to make. And then you create new shoes and now you're creating high heels, right? And what, are you giving a pair of high heels to somebody in Africa and some village? That doesn't exactly make sense. So what is it really going to look like going forward? It's such an interesting communication challenge. One of the brands that I follow closely is Patagonia. And I mean, it just seems so clear and simple that they would protect and preserve open spaces and work towards climate activism because they're an outdoorsy company and That's kind of the lifestyle they're promoting. So it all kind of lays in. They did make some political choices, but ultimately it feeds their business. And so I think that's a company to keep an eye on. Yeah, they're always a go-to example for me, especially because they've just been able to make it work so well for them. And it's a win-win for everyone. And I think we were talking about this pre-podcast, but when they make choices that are framed around activism, it actually impacts their bottom line in a really good way, more so than when they're just selling products. And so I feel like they are a brand that really understands their audience, really understands their ethos, and has just incredible integrity as an organization. And what's interesting kind of tying this back to the initial question is that it's really easy to tell that they have integrity just through their choices and their actions and their communications. And there's other organizations that it's not so easy to tell. And so I kind of feel like at some level as a consumer, if it starts to feel murky, dig into that and there's probably a reason for it. And the reason might just be that they don't have a very good marketing team. And that's not obviously 
great to not support someone just because they haven't nailed their marketing in the same way that an organization like Patagonia has. But I would listen to your intuition around those things. And just Patagonia has just done an incredible job, not even from a marketing perspective, but just from a brand strategy perspective and an operational perspective and just really having integrity around the choices that they make and how that supports their purpose and their ethos as a brand. Yep. And they've stayed committed to that same perspective for a very long time at this point. Yeah. So hats off to Patagonia. <laughs> Keep doing the good work. I mean, worn wear, normalizing used clothing, that's huge. Yeah. So if they're really talking about regeneration, another huge topic. So again, one foot in front of the other. So I want to get to a topic around crafting that message and using time. So let's talk about the how of what you do at Cosmic. These days, there's a new social platform, it seems like every week, and companies often feel overwhelmed, particularly as they start up. So if you're talking to a new business that's just trying to get their legs, they're overwhelmed. So when it comes to where they need to focus, how they get their message out, and ensuring that they have impact with each dollar spent, with limited resources at our fingertips, and wanting to do the most good with every one of them, the marketing dollars that we do have, how do you guide your clients through all these challenges? It's a big question, and I'm going to do my best to keep it concise. So the general perspective that I have on this starts with this concept of the attention economy, which is something that some of your listeners may be familiar with. The short version of the attention economy is that most folks in modern culture are overwhelmed with information. Information is no longer a scarcity like it's been in previous cultures and time periods, especially because we're so connected digitally. And now the scarcity is really how do you capture people's attention, especially through these digital channels? And especially, as you mentioned, with all of these new platforms coming out all of the time. And so one of the things that we believe strongly in is we want organizations who are focused on social impact to understand this concept, at least at a fundamental level, because they're playing in this space, whether or not they accept it or realize it or understand it. And we believe that understanding this concept of the attention economy is basically a prerequisite that shapes the rest of the work. So that's one big element of it. And we can go on and on about that, but I don't think we need to go much deeper. The second element of what we think about is really kind of what we call defining your niche in the ecosystem. In the business world, this would be referred to as positioning and differentiation. In the social impact space, we like the niche ecosystem metaphor, especially because some of the organizations that we're working with don't really have traditional competitors in the same way that the business would. If you're a nonprofit, yeah, you're fighting for resources, but you're often working synergistically with other partner organizations. So the way that we think about this is, what are your unique strengths and offerings as an organization that no one else can really claim to the same level that you can? And getting super crystal clear about that. Because if you don't do that, all of your marketing efforts are going to be lackluster and kind of shooting in the dark at some level. If you're trying to hit too many audiences, if you're not clear on your purpose, if you're not clear on your unique strengths or your niche, then you don't really know how to craft the right marketing message, the right brand story, how to invest dollars, where and for who and what you're asking people to do. And so like really nailing that, those two concepts to me are kind of the two key core pillars of 
the rest of the strategy. And once you get those, you can really start to get clear about what the right choices are with regards to what platforms you use, what content you produce, who the content's for, what you want people to do after they're consuming your content or interacting with the brand. And so if you can get those two really clear, the rest starts to become much more clear as well. So to me, this leads to really having a discussion about the optimization of digital media, because there's just so much. And maybe for some brands that's driving more traffic to their website and having more of a concerted conversation through that website. But typically, a brand is going to choose at least one social platform to try to own in their space. So how should we invest our resources of money and time in this digital world? So it's context dependent is the short answer. But I think another metaphor that we go to a lot is if you think about digital engagement, whether that's digital fundraising or advertising for the purpose of sales, if you're a corporation or a social enterprise, it's really about building a flywheel, a machine that you can invest in and that you can build over time to engage your community. And if we look at that machine and we think about this metaphor of a flywheel, your website is the hub of that flywheel and the social channels and email and paid media and all of that are nodes that lead back to the website as the main hub. So we want the website to be not your front door, but your living room. And so Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily where folks are going to come in and their first touch with your brand may be through a social post or a forwarded email from a friend or a piece of collateral in the real world even. But the website is the thing that you own, right? It's your owned media and it's the thing that you have the most control over. And it should be a place that your supporters or your customers can come and they can engage as deeply as they want to at that point. So we want it to be something that is the home base and is serves as um, a conduit to further nurturing and relationship development with your customers or your supporters. So how do you make the most out of all of this? You want to make sure that your website is set up in the way that's going to actually allow people to engage more deeply. One of the big mistakes that we see, especially in the nonprofit space, is they think of the website as being a place to tell their story. And it should do that, (laughs) but it's not actually the primary purpose of the website. And I think social enterprises, especially e-commerce brands, are a little bit better about this in general, just because it's a little bit more intuitive. Your website should be a place that tells your supporters or your community how they can get involved and engaged with what you're doing. And it needs to be framed that way. And certainly there can be a place for storytelling, but we see the website as being a tool that actually drives change in the real world. And it needs to be thought of that way. And until the website is set up in that way, your investment in paid media is going to be stymied by the fact that your website isn't structured properly. So that's really critical to the whole machine functioning properly. If you don't have that hub strong, then it doesn't matter how many great spokes you have attached to it. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I probably need your help for my website in that arena, to be frank. So I have a question that maybe is too big for this particular conversation, but I love your 30,000 foot view. How do you build a coherent, resonant brand in the modern age and best get that message out there? Perhaps you have an example of a brand that you think is doing really great work, whether or not it's your own. 
Yeah, I think this is another big question that there's so much context that's important. There's not a silver bullet answer to this, right? To me, I really do think it comes back to this concept of authenticity to bring it back to the beginning of our conversation. I think a lot of times brands are trying to grow. They're trying to get to the next stage. They're trying to reach and make progress, which is great. Like that intuition is important. You don't want to be a stagnant brand. But if you don't have a clarity of purpose and an authentic commitment to that and internal cultural alignment around that within your leadership team, within your staff, and you're kind of trying to play and present yourself as being bigger or something other than what you actually are, what you actually believe in, it's going to come through even subconsciously to your supporters, to your audience, to your community. And so I really think if brands spent more time owning who they actually are and being okay with that, and it doesn't mean you can't be in a growth mindset to do that. It doesn't mean you can't make progress even rapidly. I think that's actually a much larger issue than people realize it is. So to me, that's like a very high level answer to that question in terms of like how you actually roll that out. I think a lot of brand building is internal. I think a lot of times people think about brand building and marketing as an external effort. And it certainly is important to do that work well externally. And it certainly has external return on investment. Like it's an important element of growing the business. But I think people don't realize how important that brand building is from an internal perspective as well in terms of really building a solid team that's aligned around a clarity of purpose and a vision that lives and breathes that and understands it clearly. And it can't just be the leadership team. It has to be holistic throughout the organization. Great. So let's say a company has done all that hard work and they're really clear and they've got their message, they're getting it out there, but they just don't feel like they're doing quite enough in the social impact space. I love your perspective on companies that choose a percent of profits or a percent of sales to a social initiative as opposed to other methods. And if you have a leaning in your preference when you work with brands. Compared to like a buy one, give one model? Yeah, compared to a buy one, give one model or something where maybe the product is the cause in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question because it kind of comes down to this market-based approach to issues versus what would traditionally be called a charity-based approach. The thing that I think about is that with these large issues, these structural issues, these issues that have been unsolved for a long time that are getting worse or that we haven't been able to solve these kind of intractable issues, I don't think there's any one sector that's going to solve it. I don't think it can only be solved by government. I don't think it can only be solved by the free market. I don't think it can only be solved by nonprofits. I think these issues need to be solved structurally from a systems level holistically. And that often means these three different sectors coming together and bringing their unique strengths to the table. So. I think some issues need to be solved through organizations that are either nonprofits or government institutions that don't have any commercial imperative in mind when they're solving issues. That Their only focus is on dedicating the right amount of resources to the issue and getting people involved who deeply care about them, who have deep expertise in the issue, and that a commercial element to it, a market-based element to it, is only going to get in the way of that happening. On the flip side, I think there's other issues where 
having a market-based approach, having a need to make a profit or to have some kind of market-driven structure to the organization, it creates innovation. So an example of this is there's a lot of innovation being done in fashion. So a brand that's a favorite of mine, Allbirds, has done a lot of really cool innovation around creating a more sustainable sneaker. If you had gotten a nonprofit together to come up with that, would they have done it? I don't know, maybe, but I do think there is something to having to compete in the free market that can breed innovation. I'm not personally a believer in like free market solving all things. I do think, as I've mentioned, that there needs to be a balance between these three sectors. But that's really where I kind of see the social enterprise side adding a lot of value is that innovation. And because they're able to be structured in different ways and because they have to compete in the free market, it can breed that innovation. So at some level, though, back to your original question around kind of percentage of profits versus buy one, give one versus other models, I think it really kind of comes down to the ethos of the brand. And what I'm really interested in is will some of these organizations who start out as social enterprises selling products, will they start to move more and more towards a foundation style model where they're making profits and they're distributing those profits into causes they care about like Tom's has done? It's an interesting thing to see. I really think the lines are starting to blur a lot between nonprofits and social enterprises. Seeing a lot of nonprofits starting to sell products or services as a source of revenue instead of only relying on donations and grants. So I don't know that there's, again, a single answer to the question, but those are some of the things that I think about around that topic. Well, I'm even thinking about doing things like creating swag for the podcast to help promote it. And it's been a challenge because I'm trying to be as eco-minded as possible. And then if I look at everything through the lens of really being mindful of sustainability and social impact, suddenly I'm like, well, there's almost nothing I could create right now that I feel actually fits the ethos of the brand beyond maybe, I don't know, a journal made out of apples. I saw one of those. <laughs> like it's actually wasted, recycled apples that have become a notebook. And I'm like, well, that's really creative and interesting. And it's not made in some country that has slave labor as a challenge or something like that. So I think there's so many industries where it's very, very challenging to keep both of those things in mind and in central frame where you're creating a product to advertise a show even that is really mindful of all of those things. And so it makes it very difficult to stay authentic with the brand and ultimately means that I don't really have swag yet. <laughs> totally. That's something that we've, even our small brand has struggled with. We want to do swag for the team and for clients and partners. And it's really hard to source sustainably and ethically made products, especially at a small scale. You can do it a little bit easier if you're doing large productions. And so all of a sudden it's quite expensive. And then you even want to think about like, do we need to create more stuff? So yeah. Is it really useful? <laughs> yeah. You can start to spiral out pretty quickly. Right. So one of the things I got thinking about when we were having our initial conversation is how many brands have a real legacy following, but they might feel a little stale to the consumers and then start to lose some of the impact that they're making, even if they're doing really great things. And so I wondered if you had a perspective on this, of like if there's a secret to staying fresh, no matter the time that passes, so it's not necessary to do giant brand overhauls. And so some of these legacy brands can maybe catch up with time just by kind of changing their approach. Yeah, I think about this a lot with some 
large nonprofits who have been doing good work for many, many, many years, but are losing cultural relevance, and especially as some of their core supporters are aging out. So I think really there's a need when you're in the social impact space, regardless of your business model, to be attuned to culture. And culture is rapidly changing, especially in the last year with a large digital transformation happening. And I think it means being attuned to culture and bringing people on the team who look and act and are part of the communities that you're trying to serve, which touches around diversity and inclusivity and hiring. And by doing that, um, that will even go a really long way because you're going to just organically start to bring in a culture of people who are more attuned to what's happening in the modern world. And so what we've seen is brands get comfortable. They have a way of doing things. It's worked for a long time until it doesn't work. And then they get kind of caught in this state of paralysis because they were not planning to have to make any large shifts around some of these things. So I really think what it comes down to is kind of keeping your pulse on where culture is moving, how people are interacting with brands and supporting brands, getting their information And within reason, kind of staying up to speed on where the world's moving. And if you can do that through research, through bringing in team members and staff members who are already organically attuned to that culture and making sure that you're not getting too comfortable as a brand and just doing things because that's the way it's always worked, that's where we've seen even really large brands make strategic shifts that have kept them culturally relevant. So hire new people, (laughs) you know, keep some fresh new perspectives in your realm. I think that's critical too. Now, as we prepare to wrap up, is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? We've covered so much. This has been such a great conversation and a little bit different compared to some of the other podcasts that I've been on. So I really appreciate that. I would say an interesting topic that I've been thinking about a lot that's sort of relevant to this is just like, how do you stay motivated and stay in a space as an individual, whether this is through your work life or your personal life, and not get into a state of apathy as these issues become more urgent, more pressing, larger in scale. And I think we need to have a conversation in America and in other countries as well around how do we protect our own health and sanity in a culture that seems to just be speeding up every day with more and more information every day. So something I've been thinking about a lot as a leader and as a human is like, how do I stay in a space of openness and of optimism when so much seems to be going wrong in the world with the pandemic, with climate crisis? Sometimes it just feels like you're an ant trying to push a glacier on some of these issues. And so I think Some of that comes down to just creating space for yourself around your own balance in life and in a way that allows you to stay activated and motivated and healthy and strong versus crushed and apathetic, which is really easy to do. And especially if you're working on issues that are urgent, that are critical to the literally the survival of life on Earth you can get into this mode of wanting to just not stop and just keep going and keep going and keep going. But I think if you're not careful, that starts to work against you. You can do a sprint, but if you try and sprint the entire marathon, you're not going to make it. So really just finding ways to stay 
balanced as a person is going to be a more sustainable approach. So like, what does that look like for you as an individual? It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about at Cosmic. We work a four day work week. We really spend a lot of time trying to make sure we're not burning our team out, even though we work hard and we get a lot done. Creativity happens when you're in a space of openness and curiosity and empathy, not in a space of burnout and charging forward at all costs. So I think that's a important part of the conversation that's not often discussed through the lens of social justice or environmental justice, because that's about fighting for what's right and standing up. And that's an important part of it too. But that needs to be counterbalanced with time to rest and relax and just enjoy your time on earth as well. Right. Well, we should all seek to have a little bit more balance in our lives than we presently do. I mean, if you're working from home and also caring for your kids at home and, 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 then even the four walls of your house start to feel like they're creeping in on you. And so it's important to get space when you can. I work from home, live at home and everything else. So this weekend, I'm going to the Sea Cliff Inn in Santa Cruz. <laughs> nice. Staycation. It's just, yeah. it's Aptos, right? But it's getting outside of the four walls of my home for a weekend with the kids to be poolside or whatever. And even though it's not a lot of stress because I'm not getting on a plane, I'm not doing any of those things. We're in our local area. We'll go for hikes that are a little closer to there without as much drive time. We'll go to the beach. We'll walk around. So it's not going to be a huge investment, but it's also a really, really welcome break. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and I think that's great in terms of rest and relaxation, but even beyond that, just perspective shifting, right? Like getting out of your routine and it's good to have routine, but part of the routine should be getting out of the routine too, because oftentimes that's where your best thinking, your best ideas and just new perspectives come from. So I'm a huge believer in things like that. And quiet time. Some of your best ideas come when you're trying not to think at all. Yep. So shower thoughts, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that <laughs> Singing in the shower. Exactly. So what would you like to leave us with today? Perhaps a closing thought or a call to action? Yeah, I'd really encourage anyone who's interested in these topics to visit the website at designbycosmic.com. We have a manifesto that kind of encapsulates some of the larger thinking and philosophies and just our perspectives doing this work. But even beyond that, we have a section of our site called Insights, where we have a bunch of free resources, articles, opinion pieces, but even more like tactical resources that you can get for free on the site. So if you're an organization doing this work or even a person that cares about this work, there's just we've invested a lot of time and energy because we think it's the right thing to do. Honestly, we can't always work with especially smaller organizations. So this is one of our ways of giving back and providing some of our thinking and resources for free. So if this is something that's interesting to you at all, I'd, I'd highly recommend checking that out on the site. And hopefully that adds some valuable perspectives in the work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you, Eric, for all you do. <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation too. So it's been incredible. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Now, if our listeners want to get in touch with you directly, how should they do that? Just go to the site? Yeah, go to the site. There's a contact form there. I totally welcome anyone who's interested in connecting to email me. My email is eric, E-R-I-C, at designbycosmic.com. And I'm happy to set up a short Zoom chat with anyone who just wants to riff on this stuff or who might be a good fit to help out with some of this work. Yeah, and you never know where that inspiration will come from. So I always try to take people up on those offers if I'm interested in what they're talking about. So I encourage my listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you think you could learn more from Eric, reach out to him. He's given you that gift. Thank you so much.
Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was a great conversation. Now, listeners, I'd like to invite you to act. It doesn't have to be huge. It could be as simple as sharing this podcast with those in your community that you think could benefit from it. You could visit Cosmic's website, and I'll be sure to go ahead and include that link in show notes. To find suggestions, you can always visit our action page on caremorebebetter.com. And I invite you all to join the community that we are building. You can follow us on social spaces at caremorebebetter or just send us an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I want to hear from you. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 